This Mitzvah podcast is generously sponsored by Shia, Gamzin, and family in honor of my dear friend and mighty cheer, Shia Samet, who has kept the Daf Yomi Shir strong through the coronavirus. Also in honor of the yard site of my grandfather, Zaidi Chaim Hollander, on his yard site. His yard site was last week. May his neshama, may his soul have an aliyah. And we thank them for their generous support of Torch and of the Mitzvah podcast. If you would like to support Torch and the Mitzvah podcast, please email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We are up to Mitzvah number 57. And today we're going to do 57, 58, 59, 60, and 336. And the reason why we're doing all these five mitzvahs together is because they are interrelated. Now, we've been discussing recently the mitzvahs related to interpersonal monetary conflicts. We talked about someone who causes damage to another person or someone's property causes damage to another person's property. The mitzvahs that we're going to talk about today are the adjudication, the court is mandated to oversee and adjudicate interactions, conflicts between between plaintiffs and between defendants, and specifically with respect to guardians and custodians. If I give something, if I deposit something by someone else's home and someone else's possession, they have certain responsibilities, and if, under certain circumstances that we shall see, if that item gets lost or damaged uh, or somehow it was ruined, that person may be liable. And, of course, the court has to know all these laws to be able to adjudicate these, case, these cases properly. Now, in Jewish law, there are four types of custodians, meaning if my item is in someone else's home, it could be under four different regimes of law. I can have, let's say, I'll be going on vacation and I have my pet – and I give my pet to my friend, could you please watch my pet? Or could you please watch my valuable item? And I'm not offering any payment. That person is doing it from the goodness of their heart. They're watching it for free. And as a result, because they're doing me a whole favor, I'm not paying for it. Therefore, they have the least amount of responsibility. That would be example one. I deposit something by someone else. If they're called a shomer chinam. They're watching it for free. And therefore, they have the least amount of liability. And they're only going to be liable in a case of gross negligence. A second kind of custodian or, or guardian is someone who watches for a fee. I, I will pay you to watch my item. And therefore, because you get paid for it, you have heightened liability. A third example is a renter. I rent my item to you. You pay me for it. And you're entitled to use that item and therefore you you do get some benefit from being the guardian, being the custodian of that item and therefore that has its own category. And finally, you have the borrower. You, my neighbor comes to my house and borrows something from me and of course, he has all the benefit. He's borrowing my item, he's borrowing my rate, he's borrowing my lawnmower, he's borrowing my phone. And consequently, because he has all the benefit and I have no benefit, in that case, the borrower, the custodian, has the most amount of liability. Now, all these laws are like condensed in the Torah into a few short verses, as they often are. Whereas if you open up the Talmud, you'll find essentially books of Talmud. And you'll find students all over the world, some of the best and brightest Jewish minds, churning over all the various different permutations of the Talmud, 
and all the commentary. Of course, it is very complex, but our goal is to give a brief snapshot of this mitzvah, what some of the laws are, maybe some of the interesting cases, and uh, and to get a little bit of a picture, a little bit of a taste of these laws. So the first mitzvah we're going to cover is mitzvah number 58, and that is that the court is responsible to oversee the judicial cases of plaintiffs and defendants. And that could be in a case where there's a dispute over a loan or a deposit or theft, i.e. I come to the court and I say someone stole from me. They have to respond to that claim and they have to, of course, engage with the witnesses and the evidence as we shall see. Or if there's any other monetary complaint or robbery. That's a verse in the Torah that we have to appoint courts to oversee civil personal disputes of, of monetary nature. Now, again, I want to give this disclaimer. These laws are vast. These laws are complex. They span whole books of Talmud, but we're going to try to give a, a little bit of a taste of these mitzvahs. So what does a court do when they are presented with a monetary case? So, of course, they look for evidence, and evidence could be in the form of documentation, it could be in the form of contracts, it's, of course, in the form of witness testimony and how they have to process the witnesses to determine if they're legitimate, were they witnesses for hire, they have to, of course, examine the witnesses, they have to evaluate the precise claims of the plaintiff and the response of the defendant. And, of course, they can use, they can administer oaths as a way of determining whether or not a claim is credible. And the idea behind this is that people are very, very hesitant to swear on all that is holy, and therefore this is a tool that the court has, Torah gives the court, to be able to help verify unverifiable information. You have person A saying the person owes me. Person B says it's not true. And of course, the court wasn't there. And maybe the witnesses are not reliable. And of course, there's a million different cases. But one of the tools, and this is a very important idea in Torah law, they can verify what's invisible to them by employing the oath based upon the understanding that people are very reticent to violate their oaths. Now, there are three different instances when someone would be biblically obligated to perform an oath. So here's the first case. Suppose the plaintiff says that the defendant owes them $100. They borrowed the money, let's say. The defendant says, yes, I owe you money. But I don't owe you $100, I owe you $50. This is what's called a hoda'a b'mitzas hataina, meaning a partial admittance, partial admittance of the claim. The claim was 100 and the admittance was, was partial. And therefore, it seems like there's something amiss. The person is admitting that there was some sort of oath, but it wasn't quite that. In that case, there will be a biblically mandated oath. The defendant will have to swear on a Torah scroll on all that is holy. They'll have to swear that they only owe 50. And if they indeed are unwilling to do it, they would have to pay the full hundred. That's the first example. Second example is like we mentioned, you need witnesses. But in Jewish, in a Jewish court, you always need two witnesses, a minimum of two witnesses. So suppose I come to court. 
I bring someone with me. I say, this person owes me $100. And I have, I have evidence. I have a witness. But I have only one witness. So the law is that in the event of someone having insufficient witnesses, that's not enough to mandate a ruling or to, to, to force a ruling, but that can force an oath. I say some, someone owes me $100. I have one witness that says, yeah, I was there. They borrowed the money. It was, it was all, it was all legit. I was there. I witnessed it. And, but there's only one witness. Maybe the second witness died. Maybe there only was one person there who was privy to that exchange. That person cannot obligate a ruling, but can obligate a biblical oath. And finally, if there is a custodian, if there is a custodian, in a case, on certain cases, we shall see if there's a custodian, the custodian would be obligated to make an oath. Now, I want to point out that there are also rabbinically instituted oaths, even in a, an event where someone has a total denial. I say, you owe me $100. The person says, I owe you zilch, nada, nothing, nil, zero. I don't owe you anything. From a biblical perspective, we would say, the person is not obligated to swear. However, there is a rabbinically instituted oath because people don't just make these random claims for nothing, or that's the assumption at least. And therefore, the rabbis wants to do a lower level of an oath just to make sure, just to make sure that the person is not just disregarding the true claim. Now, there are a whole host of differences between a biblically mandated oath and a rabbinically mandated oath. So what happens, for example, if the person is obligated to make a biblical oath and the defendant refuses to swear? I'm not going to do it. I don't owe them the money, but I'm not going to do it. I owe them only 50, not the 100, but I don't want to swear. Well, in that case, we would garnish their money. We would take away their assets because they have to swear if they're not swearing, well, then they're liable. If someone refuses to do a rabbinic oath, they're going to be labeled a sinner and they could be punished at the court's discretion, but the ruling is not brought into effect. Into, into effect. Here's another interesting question the Talmud talks about. What if you have a case where the defendant says, I don't want to swear. I'm not comfortable swearing. But why don't you take the opposite oath? Let me throw the ball back into your court. You say, I owe you money. I say, it's not true. I don't want to swear. You swear that it is true and I'll pay you the money. Can the defendant take the oath and put it back in the plaintiff's court? No pun intended. And the answer is it depends. If it is a biblical oath, then the answer is no. If it's a rabbinic oath, then it's complicated, but under certain conditions, that could happen where the oath is mandated on one person, but they could throw it in the other person's court. What happens if we suspect that the defendant will perjure himself? If we have some reason to believe that the person may be lying, then we, from a biblical perspective, the plaintiff would swear and take the money, and rabbinically, we won't institute an oath when there is grounds for such a suspicion. And of course, these are different types of oath. You would have a biblical oath 
you would hold a sacred item, a Torah scroll, maybe tefillin or something like that, and you would say, I'm, dist- I'm swearing on the name of God that I am telling the truth. So these are some of the laws related to oath. I want to point out that this is a very big and fascinating subject in the Talmud. Of course, we're only getting a small sprinkling of it. Uh, when I was in yeshiva, I had the great fortune of actually authoring several essays on the subject of an oath of partial admittance. And of course, this sounds really riveting to us. Oh, wow, where do I sign? How do I get a copy of that abstract? But it actually is, once you get into the real meat, you know, the real meat of the subject, it's, it's kind of very fascinating. And there's a lot of, of wonderful commentary and, and sources and, and, uh, uh, the fascinating Rambams, of course. The idea that I swear, I am required to swear in the event that I have a partial admittance of a claim. So that's some of the laws related to the first mitzvah. Mitzvah number four, uh, four, uh, 58 that require us to create courts or core court system, a judiciary to judge matters of civil dispute. Mitzvah number 57 is the law of an unpaid custodian. Again, this is someone that I give something to. I say, here, take my my item of value, my valuable thing and watch it for me. What if I come back a month later and say, okay, where's my watch? Where's my phone? Where is my valuable? And the person says, well, it was stolen. Well, I lost it. In that case, the person would be required to swear that it was indeed lost or stolen, and then they would be absolved of any responsibility. Now, there's an interesting idea here. Talmud says that once someone is swearing about one thing, there's already an oath in place, we roll other stuff into it. Namely, we require him to add to his oath the following clause. I didn't touch it. And I watched it properly. What if there was gross negligence? The person, he left the barn door open. Where is my horse? Oh, I don't know. Uh, You didn't pay me to watch it. I left my barn door open and it just marched out. It, It could be anywhere by now. Well, in that case, even though they weren't paid to be a custodian, they are liable to to pay. And if the person, for example, uses it without permission... So I, I say, okay, here, watch this. Don't touch it. Just watch it. And they say, eh, it's in my house. I'm using it. Automatically, they are becoming liable for anything, even if it was a total accident. So that's a uh, an unpaid custodian. What about if someone is a paid custodian or a renter? So then even if it was stolen, even if it was lost, they are required to pay. So because they gain some benefit from it, then they are required to elevate the, the, the guardianship, so to speak, and they would be required to pay in the event that it was lost or stolen. If it was a total accident, you know, you'd give me, I rent your animal and the animal just dies. It has a heart attack. It's not my fault. It was a total accident. In that case, the renter or the custodian is off the hook provided that they swear. Uh, finally, we have the third type of custodian. It's really the fourth because renter and someone who is a paid custodian have the same laws. The fourth kind of custodian is a borrower. I come to my neighbor, will you lend me your haircut machine? 
This is a time a lot of people are doing at-home haircuts. Can I borrow your haircut machine? I actually already lent out my clippers to my to multiple neighbors multiple times. So in that case, because all the benefit is accrued to the borrower, and by the way, in, in English, the borrower, like if you borrow money from the bank, you're actually paying them back. But if I borrow the rake from my neighbor, it's the same word. So it's a little bit imprecise. But in this context, it means you borrow it and you're not paying a fee. You're not paying back with interest. You're just borrowing it and you'll give it right back. In that case, if the item is not given back in pristine condition, then it is the responsibility of the person who's the the custodian who is the borrower. And the logic behind that is if I lend you money for an investment and your investment goes south, no one's going to argue that you shouldn't pay me back. I had no business with your investment. I lent you money. Give me back the money. I gave you a rake. Give me back a rake. There is no, I, I'm assuming no responsibility. I'm assuming no liability. When I give it to you, you have 100% liability. There's only two cases where the borrower is not liable for damage done to the item. Either if it dies amidst doing what it was supposed to do. So the example the Talmud gives is if the animal, I borrowed your animal to plow my field. And I'm in the middle of plowing my field. And amidst doing precisely what I borrowed it you know, for, amidst that, it dies. In that case, I am not liable. And there's, a, there's a various reasons as to why that would be the case. One of the commentaries, for example, says that it was clearly ill-suited for the job that it was borrowed for, and therefore it's not my fault. I told you I want to borrow it for plowing. I used it for plowing. It died. It couldn't handle that kind of work. It's not my fault. You shouldn't have given it to me under those conditions. Alternatively, because the owner knew that this was its intended use and he allowed it, that equals him assuming responsibility for such losses. A second case where the borrower would not be liable would be in the event that the owner is with him at the time of borrowing. And the logic behind that is that the owner should have watched it himself if he was present. Now, I think a really relevant question is the following dilemma. Is there anything that we could borrow from our friend without explicit permission? Can I, I, no one would say I could just take my friend's car and borrow it. I'm not going to damage it. You have to ask permission to use your friend's car. Is there anything that I could borrow without asking explicit permission? So there's an interesting law. And the law states that religious articles such as tefillin or atalis or Torah books, there is an assumption and this is an assumption that comes from the Talmud, that people would be very desirous that other people use their articles for a mitzvah. People want mitzvahs to be done with their items. And therefore, there is a, there's a blanket assumption that people would be okay with, with others borrowing their religious articles, provided they return it promptly, and in pristine tradition, and they don't remove it. They don't change, they don't move it location. For example, in the yeshiva, 
this was always the question. You know, if I see, I open a book, I see a book. Oh, I really want to look at this book, this Torah book, because it's relevant to what I'm studying or because I don't have a copy of this particular book. In that event, I'm allowed to use it, provided I use it quickly and I maintain total control over it. I put it back in pristine condition. Now, when I was 17, I was in yeshiva in Israel and I had a copy of a certain book. This was actually a book authored by my grandfather. Not only that, he had given me a copy and he had written a nice dedication to it, to me on the first page. So it wasn't just any book. It was like a book that I really, was really important to me. And then for like a month, I couldn't find it. Why? Someone borrowed it and they didn't put it back. And when I finally got it back, I said, you know what? This is not happening again. So I opened up the, the copy, the book, and I wrote inside, it is prohibited to use it. I wrote it in Hebrew. It is prohibited to use it. And even if you ask me permission and I say yes, it's still prohibited to use it. You have to get explicit permission, not, not generic permission. You have to get explicit permission. And by the way, this book is still my bookshelf in my, in my home office. And it still has the little rant that I wrote when I was 17. And again, this is interesting. Despite the fact that normally you need explicit permission in the event of a, of a mitzvah, like a, a Torah article or the like, there is an assumed permission unless there is an explicit prohibition. In that case, you would not be allowed uh, to use in general. Lending books, I find, is, is often a one-way trip. You lend a book out and you'll never see it again. I heard someone uh, on a podcast say that his policy is whenever someone asked – he used to be, says it used to be, whenever someone asked to borrow a book, he would say no because he never gets it back. But his new policy is whenever someone asks to borrow a book, he says yes, gives that person the book, and then just buys a replica, a replacement copy because he knows he's never going to get it back. Um, it is interesting. Okay, um, there is an interesting case that is discussed in the Talmud. Again, there's there's thousands. We're going to pick a few here and there. And the question is, suppose there was a renter who decide to kind of sublease and to give it off to someone else. This is a subject. You know, if I am a custodian, can I make a custodian for a different person? Person A gives me the item. Can I give it off to person B or C to watch it now for me. The general rule is no. You can't take someone else's item and pass it off to a third party. But suppose someone did that. I rented the item from the owner and therefore I have the liability of the renter and I decide to let my neighbor use it. He's the borrower now. And of course, the borrower has the highest degree of liability because they have all the benefit. And now... The item dies or the item gets ruined in that person's property. This creates an interesting dilemma. The renter, me, is not liable for natural death. The borrower is liable for natural death. So can I, the renter, swear to the original owner and say, listen, it died a natural death. I could swear. I'm not liable. And the borrower will actually pay me. That one says, can I profit 
off the original owner's item because I decided to get someone else who had a higher degree of liability and it was damaged at the degree of liability that only they're responsible and I'm not responsible. And that is an interesting debate at the Talmud Brains, again, one of many. The final mitzvah that I want to talk about is mitzvah, mitzvah 336, and it's because it's related, and that is the, the question of adjudication of commerce disputes. The, uh, the seller and the buyer, and there could be a myriad of disputes that they may have related to this. Uh, did he sell it? Was it a good sale? Was it damaged uh, goods? And therefore, the sale could be perhaps annulled. Now, it's interesting, the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos, he asked the question, you know, there's so many mitzvos that are so similar, why do we have to have so many mitzvos? The court has to see disputes, and that could include all kinds of disputes. Why do we have to kind of um, spread them out over different mitzvos? And he says that there's a pattern throughout the Torah. When something is so essential, it's so critical, the Torah gives us multiple mitzvos for each angle, for each dimension of that particular thing. And because commerce and interpersonal economic activity is so important, it happens every day. Well, at least it used to happen every day. It used to happen every day before the shutdown. But it's something that really is the engine behind civilization. Therefore, it's important to have so many different mitzvos. For example, idolatry. There's 44 different mitzvos related to this vast subject of idolatry. Why? Because it's it relates to the bedrock of, of our religion to the bedrock of of the Torah. And therefore, because it's so important, it's so critical, all the various angles are fleshed out into their own mitzvah. You know, Shabbos, there's 12 different mitzvahs with Shabbos, and many mitzvahs related to loving the convert, for example, mitzvahs that are related to Lashon Hara. There's 31 different mitzvahs related to Lashon Hara. Such important stuff, such things, uh, things that come up so frequently, and therefore it is critical for us to have a lot of mitzvahs related to them. So just briefly, how does someone acquire something? How does item A go from being in the ownership of person A to person B? So we're told, interestingly, that if I give money to the store owner, and that is done in exchange for the item, from a biblical perspective, the transaction has been consummated. It's done. However, rabbinically, there's all sorts of stringencies added to deal-making. Why? This is interesting. We want to eliminate as much dead space as possible between the deal and the transfer of goods. What's going to be? I have a big item. I don't know. I have a bushel of wheat in my storehouse. I want to sell it to you. You give me the money. It's yours. But where is it physically located? It's physically located in my storehouse. God forbid there's a fire. What what, what do I do? I save all my stuff. Let your stuff burn. Why? Because it's not mine. And I have no, I have no incentive to, to save it. And therefore, the rabbis were concerned that a deal's been consummated, but now there is this asymmetry, and now there is the danger of the item not being sufficiently guarded because it's not technically owned by the person who's harboring it. And therefore, the halacha is that unless the person has actually acquired 
their item, the deal is not done. So if there's movable property, then you can lift it, you could draw it, you could pull it, you can hand it over like a, a boat, for example. Someone talks about it's too heavy to lift. Uh, and then non-movable property, real property, that is done either by money, by contract, by asserting ownership. Tama talks about putting a fence or other uh, ways of acquiring. Again, this is a vast subject and we're just trying to give a little taste, a small little dabbling of these mitzvahs. And these are the mitzvahs related to courts, courts being established to oversee not criminal uh, questions, not, cr- not criminal cases, but interpersonal and monetary cases. And that will ensure that we'll have a happy and functioning society where people know that their property rights are respected and that justice will be meted out for all.